The iGaming Business Podcast is proudly sponsored by BetRadar, the world's number one betting services provider. Are you looking to boost your profits or optimize your customer engagement? Over 600 clients across 30 countries can't be wrong, relying on BetRadar's market-leading sports betting solutions to enhance their offering. Find out what BetRadar can do for your business at BetRadar.com. BetRadar, driven by facts. You're listening to the IGB Pod, hosted by iGaming Business Deputy Editor, Hannah Ganajay-Stewart. Welcome to the second edition of the iGaming Business Podcast. This month, I speak to Joe Samaras-Smith about the sale of IPS to Leo Vegas earlier this year, and how the proceeds of that deal are being invested into bead gaming. Joe also gives us an interesting insight into some of his other business interests, including Canadian cannabis stocks, believe it or not. I thought he was kidding at the end of the interview when he mentioned it, but he later assured me he was quite serious. Before all that, though, me and freelance journalist Jake Pollard travelled to GameV co-founder Helen Walton's North London home for the news roundup. Okay, so the second news roundup uh, for iGaming Business Podcast. This week coming from Helen Alton of Gamebee's delightful house. Very glad to have you here. It's and I do nice. apologise if we hear cats meowing in the background, <laughs> children trying to get in and ask about help for anything. Um, I apologise. It's, it's, it's very nice surroundings to be in. We've got coffee, we've got croissants. It's a good place to be talking about the news. We've also got Jake Pollard with us, freelance journalist. Good morning. How are you doing, Jake? Very glad to be here. Excellent. Thank you very much for joining uh, us, both of you. Um, so the first story that we were going to discuss this morning was uh, Playtex results, which mm. have not been overly impressive. They've had a bit of a tough year. It feels like every time we get a story about Playtex this year, it's sort of incrementally getting slightly worse for them. How do you guys respond to this sort of 38% profit slump that they've reported yesterday? Some of the things that Playtech did in the past that have absolutely shored up their profit position in the past, they're very kind of tight monopolies that they've created. They're, they're tight integrations and they're tight contracts with operators. They've been very powerful for them. But as more innovation happens in the industry, um, I think more and more operators are starting to ask why they are unable to access that via Playtech's very kind of tight world view. Um, I do think they have some long-term challenges ahead um, and I think they need to respond. Having said which, I don't think it's going to be hard for them to respond if they mm. really put their minds to it. I think, I think people are slightly over-panicking. I think they remain a very strong business. In all honesty, I think their share price is undervalued at the moment. Yeah. If I were an investor with spare money that I wasn't putting into Gamebee, I might well be buying <laughs> a few Playtech shares myself. And they've been, I mean, they've definitely been doing some work, haven't they, to sort of restructure internally. I mean, we know that there's been some redundancies this year. There's been some changes internally. They've just brought Ian Penrose in from Sport, like what he was formerly at Sport Tech, and it sounds like, I mean, it's being reported that he's being lined up as chairman. So mm. there's obviously a sense there that they need to bring some fresh blood in and some fresh... They, they did give Alan and more a fat pay rise, which shareholders looked like they were going to challenge, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, uh, at the same time, I mean, as Helen says, there's commercial structures that probably need to be overhauled to an extent um, by Plato. I mean, like Helen, I believe that they will address those issues and they'll move with the times. I mean, you know, they've been, in, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, they've been an amazing iGaming company, um, growing massively. Um, 
the model has changed. The, the mm. environment, the working environment, is different these days. Um, but no doubt they'll adapt, um, and you know, and, and continue to grow. Okay, moving on. The U.S. is still one of the biggest stories, obviously, out there. Everyone is talking about it. There is new news about that every single day. There's been some pretty major brands. I mean, William Hill has been in the U.S. for a long time. They're still making waves. We can see that happening. There's been some other brands entering. I mean, SB Tech have um, sort of done a pretty good deal this week, and they've and they've gone further into the, that market. Um, Evolution have also um, started the first studio there for live casino gaming, which is quite an interesting move. And Evolution are always a company that kind of seems to do quite well. They can they seem to be pretty popular out there. What what are your guys' thoughts on like how this is kind of building momentum now, and these companies are really kind of rapidly going into that market um but personally i think I, I just think it's still very very early it's impossible to know really how it's going to shake out um there's there's got to be some consolidation there's too many brands and too many you know operators mm. for what remain really small markets i mean if you look at new jersey there's only nine million people um difficult to, to to get a thriving competitive market out of there and you'd expect two or three brands to come out and, and dominate in the next few years um Personally, I think I think it's the big states that we, everyone's waiting for. Um, mm. You know, California, New York. Um, just got to keep an eye on those. I mean, yeah, New Jersey is is, is well. It's, it's a gambling. It's got history, so that's fine. But the others, I don't know, William, yeah, will it make that much difference? It's hard to tell. We'll have to wait, wait and see. Um, well, there's a few. It's always interesting because there's a few big brands that I sometimes think insist on what they believe to be first mover advantage. And I sometimes think it's more about their own stories of themselves as big companies that have to have to make that move. You know, there's that old adage, isn't that about? Isn't there about the pioneers are the ones with the arrows in their chests? <laughs> <laughs> it's the second movers who actually make it. Yeah, I mean, you want to be. I mean, you would assume that some of the larger brands have been eyeing this market for so long and mm. with so much heft that they're probably influencing the regulation as much as they're getting to learn about it right but if you're a smaller player the opportunity to see that you're yeah. you're on the back foot yeah if you're a smaller player stay out yeah <laughs> wait and see yeah, and let, think... let other people do all the uh, all the work for you yeah, yeah. yeah i mean and i think also in terms of i mean the, the one advantage of going early with some of the big players are the kind of the deals that you can get um, in terms of basically retainer and mm -hmm. retainers, which kind of make it worthwhile because clearly the volume is going to be there at the beginning. So clearly, in terms, on that basis, it's understandable. Um, it's interesting you mentioned regulatory hurdles. I mean, I'm actually surprised at how seemingly easy some companies are getting licensed and stuff like that. Is yes. that something you've found? I mean, I don't know what well, Hannah and your let, experience. Let me be clear: I'm a games producer, not a not any sports sure, betting. Sure, so. Sure. So it's quite a different kettle of fish. Well, there are definitely businesses that are cracking that market, it seems, who have big presences in black markets that we know that they're, they're drawing, you know, huge revenues from black markets. And the US is supposed to be incredibly anti that kind of operation. But then the trouble is, what big players out there aren't doing that? No. There isn't really any, you know, if they're going to take... Uh, the lessons from the European market and bring in operators that have the right platforms and the kind of expertise they require to set this up. I mm. don't know. I mean, you may disagree. You may sort of have something to add. I can't see where they're going to get yeah. those yeah, those they, people that aren't. They seem working to be taking a very pragmatic approach. Yeah. to it. I think I think there's very little choice. Yeah, if you ban one, you'd have to ban just about everyone. Yeah. Then I might lose it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a the time. There's your opportunity. <laughs> Don't be first, be right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Thank you 
so much for uh, joining us for the second podcast. And it's a pleasure, and I'm glad to say that talking about gambling has finally silenced the cat. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, guys. Thank Cheers. You. You're listening to the IGB Pod. Okay, I'm here with our guest for this month, uh, Joe Somers Smith, who is the Chief Executive of Sports Gaming Limited, um, a Chairman of the gaming platform Lead Gaming, and Non Executive Director at British Horse Racing Authority. Good morning, Joe, how are you doing? Good morning, very good, thank you. Nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for agreeing to uh, take part. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's really good to have you on it. You've recently uh, made the sale of IPS to uh, Leo Vegas, which yes. is a company that you started with the same founders as Lead Gaming. Um, I think the idea, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that you, that is to create some investment into Bead and to kind of push forward with that platform. What are your plans? Yeah, I mean, very, very much. Um, I think that uh, the IPS business, we had we'd largely set that up to show that the Bead platform works, and it right. ter- turned out to be a much bigger business and more successful business probably than any of us could have expected, which was great. Um, I think there were a number of our clients who said, uh, how can you be a, a supplier and an operator at the same time? And certainly that was a concern to people when we're going out and doing pitches. Uh, and then again, obviously, uh, you know, building a, a platform business is expensive. Yeah. And um, it was a question of uh, what, what's the best way to fund our, our, the Bead's future expansion. And the sale of IPS was was obvious. Uh, and I must say that Leo, Leo Vegas have been a fantastic buyer and yeah. they've been really, really um, great to work with. But also uh, all all the IPS employees are uh, delighted and actually spend most of their time telling me how much better Leo Vegas <laughs> being, so are, 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 are than we were. Well, so what's next for Bead then? I mean, this, this investment's there now and you've, you've obviously got plans to take that platform on. It's been doing incredibly well since it launched. What's what's next? Well, for us, it's uh, it's... It's going out and uh, finding uh, some finding operators who can be sort of key partners. Um, what we're trying to do is is to work very closely and collaboratively with with a small number of of bigger companies. Um, we're doing quite a lot of work in the lottery space, uh, and we hope to be able to announce quite soon a, a, a big lottery contract win. Okay, uh, and. Um, I think that that we will. Um, we're not trying to do lots of little white label. You know, there's a temptation that you you have a lot of people knocking on your door mm. saying, um, "Can I have a you know an online casino for uh, for you know let's say the uh, Romanian market?" And we 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 can do that, and if people are well funded, but we've certainly we've previously been through that sort of white label business. And it's just increasingly hard to uh, to manage it and to make any money out of it, and so so we we, we really as a, as a board we've looked at it and tried to go uh, with a small number of big companies. So it's sort of I mean it, this seems to be a bit of a story across the market in the sense that there, it has for a long time been a volume game in lots and lots of areas, but increasingly it feels like it's a quality game now, and it's actually fewer better clients seems to be the way that a lot of people are looking. Would you say that's the case? 
I, I think so. There's, there's market materials. I mean, it's, it's, it just looks like pretty much any any market in in any industry that it's you know it it starts off as the as the wild west, yeah. and eventually there's a sort of shakeout and. Uh, you know the regulators get much tougher. Uh, the scale matters, uh, and you just you know the the person sitting in their underpants in the in their front room can no longer be you know no no longer run in the industry. Um, I think you know there are lots and lots of markets that are still unregulated, and there's room for people in those. I was going to say, do you think we're but, actually out of the wild west yet? Uh, no, I think there are so the whole sections of the market that yeah. are, that are still sort of wild west ish, but yeah. w- you know we're trying to stay away from that. So one of the things about Bead is that we've only ever worked in fully regulated markets, uh, and that really is a point of differentiation. And actually, that's one of the reasons that when we go and talk to lottery clients or to uh, big companies in newly regulating markets, that's what they really like. Yeah. They don't want us to have you know had Chinese or Taiwanese activity uh, no. and actually a lot of our rivals do do have substantial revenue sources yeah, from, from those markets. That's the benefit of being a new entrant at this stage really isn't it because you have, are already aware of which markets perhaps are going to make you more appealing in the future whereas I guess if you've cut if you're a legacy platform that's been kind of operating since the beginning in the more Wild West days it's hard to sort of be squeaky clean perhaps. Yeah I think I think though that you can uh, it, it's 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 much harder that if you if you're one of those legacy operators and you've got thirteen percent of real revenues from somewhere like Malaysia, it's you know particularly if you're a public company, cutting off that amount of money is uh, is very hard to do. Yeah. Uh, and I think you know in a way we we're lucky that we don't have that temptation in front of us. So yeah. it's not it's not it's not a difficult thing to give up. It's that we're not entering those markets. Um, but it is interesting to you know you look at the the regulations in the US, and I'm I'm quite surprised by some of the regulators who initially came out and said you know obviously we're not we want people who are squeaky clean, but they've realised that the reality is that the, the yeah. people are going to have grey or even dark grey or black revenues, yes. and and yeah they seem to be much more lax than than I suspected, but I think that will be. Certainly, some regulators in the U.S. market who just say, "No, we want somebody who's totally, you know, has never, yeah. t- never taken a single bit of grey market activity." And, and, but it's just so hard to know how it's going to play out at the moment because uh, you know, nobody knows what the tax rates are going to be, yeah. or even the rules about what kind of bets you can take, yeah. and you know, what, are you going to have to pay an integrity fee? I mean, it's just. Uh, you know, a lot of people are are getting very excited by the market, but without really knowing what the market's going to look yeah, like. Everybody rushed into New Jersey, and people spent an awful lot of money. Yes. And you know, I, I don't. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that more money was spent than has been got out of that market so far. But they have put themselves in a position that people say, "Well, who's in New Jersey? Well, we should be talking to all of them." Yeah. So we, we're having those conversations, uh, and we're just we're, we're trying to work out uh, which markets you can actually make some money in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I don't think that's clear to anybody at the moment. Obviously, as a private company with a, a small number of shareholders, there's a difference between. 
us who who need to make a sort of business decisions against big public companies that have to have to strategically position themselves because their shareholders are going to say yeah. why aren't why you aren't doing there? something in the US yeah, absolutely. so they can you know, yeah. they can afford you know they can boost their share price and still lose money yeah. whereas i'm not sure that works so well for no, us it's not so great for you guys <laughs> i mean have you been having conversations that kind of reveal that there is a desire to work with sort of new entrant type platforms like you guys that are a bit more flexible? I mean, have they got the same awareness that we have here about kind of legacy platforms and some of the difficulties? No, so what, what we're doing is a lot of education yeah. of, uh, you know, people basically saying, what is a platform? Why does yeah. why does a platform make any difference? I mean, essentially what, what they want to do is they want to buy a big box that allows them to do online gambling. Yes. And then five years down the line, they'll, they'll have actually realised some of the some of the nuances of it and that they should be making a lot more money mm. uh but what we're trying to do is say at the moment look you, you either bring in some people who you know some consultants who know know the european market yeah. and can see the the you know what the analogies are to cross to the us market because the, there will be lots of local um market differences i don't think you can just say let's take a uk operator business or a Germany operator business or you know one of the ones in in the Nordics yeah. uh, and let's just put it into the US and rebadge it no there are market specifics to it yes. um, but it's you know in the end uh, it's it, you know the power of a platform is is the ability first of all to be open so you can plug in all the all the local requirements but also uh, that it can do all the regulatory things that, and and I'm pretty sure that the US regulatory stuff will be pretty tough. Yeah, I think it's going to surprise people how much of it, and the fact that also every state obviously has is its own jurisdiction, so it's going to be so varied and so uh, so much to get your head around. I, I think really the problem is that you're dealing with people who they've got you know dollar signs in their eyes where they're saying we are going to make a fortune from tax revenues out of this or licensing and and actually the although i'm sure it's going to be a huge market eventually initially there's probably you know there's people who are just going to carry on betting with their local bookie or betting with the offshore books that are mm. running out of costa rica or panama or whatever yeah. and in, until until the offering is competitive with that uh, you know there isn't a there isn't that much of a culture of sports betting no uh, th- you've got to evolve that you've got to get everything around it you've got to get the broadcasters putting up the lines you've got to have a pre-game show in which they talk about what the under over yeah. is or what the point spread is that takes time to evolve another um, market that's quite interesting is india which has similarly got this very uh, sort of suspicious attitude towards gambling but has hinted quite heavily that it's going to go down the regulation market sort of route um what are your thoughts on that as a kind of opportunity well i mean i'm uh, i'm the largest investor in something called indiabet.com which is the largest social gaming site in india uh and so I, i've always thought that the indian market is is potentially just enormous and if you it's funny because if you everybody talks about china or southeast asia as being just a hotbed of gambling mm-hmm. and but if you walk down a, a, a high street in india there's gambling absolutely everywhere it's unbelievable like it. it's unbelievable but but in you, you would walk down that that same street and not spot it right and when i started going to india i, just, I could i didn't spot it at all now i can see 
there's people playing teen patty on the car bonnets. There's right. a there's a Raj Shree lottery shop. There's a slot machine place. There's a blackjack and roulette place. Yeah, and it's Hiding all in plain sight. It is absolutely. It's yeah. all there. Everybody knows about yeah. it, and so it's you know it's a market that's massively evolved. Everybody, you know, if you go to you know an IPL game. So I've, uh, last IPLs, I went to a game in. Uh, well, I went to two games, uh, and. Uh, it was extraordinary. Everybody, everybody had the Betfair prices up. Right, Every yeah. time there was a wicket, everybody was, and everybody was checking their phone and, and putting on a new position. And everybody there, like the first question they asked me was, uh, what, what have you bet on? Yeah, yeah. It's so just, not- I know, it was not like I had a big sign above me saying, you know, person who works in gambling yeah, industry. Yeah. They just thought, they naturally assume that, you've that, had a, that everybody's had a bet. So it's culturally all there. And, yeah. and, the you know the fact is it would be much better to tax and regulate yeah. it but i've been going out to gaming conferences in india for 6 years now and you see the same same old politicians and judges and every one of them it privately will acknowledge that it would be much better to tax and regulate mm. But there are lots and, you know, it's politically difficult to do and that. they really some very sort of mixed messages in terms of making statements on it, haven't they? Well, what they happens said, is... You know, absolutely it remains illegal. However, we acknowledge it'd be far better to regulate it because it's all happening anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, what happens is that uh, you you put out a report, a report, you make a positive comment on it, you get killed in the media for it, and then you sort of you rail back from mm-hmm. it. But it's gradually edging towards a point where they'll do it but I still you know I, I still think it will take some time but there's obviously been a lot of uh, M&A activity in in India and there are a lot of people sort of externally thinking right this is a this is a t- something that could could be happening mm-hmm. and certainly we're seeing uh, a lot more people who are entering the you know, entering the Indian market and and working out how, how to get money in and out. One thing I'm kind of interested in I mean you've as we've touched on you've got sort of so many different industry interests in the industry but horse racing is sort of um an area that's kind of quite close to your heart and somewhere that you started out kind of yeah i mean i i certainly as a as a punter focused mainly on horse racing and i I think it's a fantastic sport just for me it's it it, there's something about the the power of a horse and the beauty of it and i you know I'm always surprised by how few, how few people are, <laughs> share share that, but yeah. um, you know. But I, I have two children who are, are football mad, so I you know, I, oh, I, really? I can see I, I could well I'm, I'm I'm trying to sort of inculcate it, but it's not yeah. it's not as easy as it. Um, but no, I mean you know, horse racing is uh, it's, it's something that I've followed massively. I, I worked for the Racing Post briefly when mm-hmm. I was. Uh, straight out of university and uh, I was on the Jockey Club graduate programme 27 years ago and uh, when I got a call from a headhunter saying would you be interested in being a non-executive director sort of with with responsibility for betting and technology I thought it was I was super excited yeah uh, and it's you know, it's been fascinating to to sort of be at that that level and, and a sport that I love so much uh, but also just to to understand the sort of the, the politics and machinations of a, of a regulator is quite is fascinating as well. I, I think that um, the sport historically has been quite bad at working with bookmakers on 
improving the product and we've got a lot better at that and there's a guy at the BHA now called Tristan Wooten whose responsibility is to liaise with the betting industry and talk about what uh, you know for example what time of day you should run the right. run races uh, and you know we've historically run a product that is is for sitting in betting shops but more than half people, half the bets placed on horse racing now are online yes. so actually should you be running you know, a big race in the half time between the on the on the Monday night Premier League game. Yeah, you probably should because that's when people have a bet. So we're we're doing a lot more around that. And it, it, but yeah, I mean historically, I think coming out of the uh, I guess the the sort of when when the jockey club ran the sport as a as a sort of benign dictatorship, um, there was a feeling that bookmakers were sort of vulgar people who we, we shouldn't talk to. And I, I, things have evolved and changed from that. And the fact that Nick Rust, who was at Ladbrokes, is you know is now chief executive, that has changed a lot. Um, but yeah, there is there is there are still sections of the sport where there's hostility to bookmaking. Um, I I think that actually, if you look at what Skybet has done, um, they've done an amazing job of actually moving football punters over to being horse racing punters. Yeah. So historically, and partly because of the cost of the product bookmakers have used horse racing to recruit punters and then move them across to higher margin, so football and casino. Um, I think actually if you look at the numbers, bookmakers are increasingly saying actually horse racing is a very useful product for us, um, but we, it could be a lot better as well. And also you just have to look at the, I mean, there is a whole cost cost of ownership question, which is every time I talk to a bookmaker, that's what they will say, is they say, why would I promote a product which costs me, you know, essentially somewhere around 20%, uh, whereas I can buy a slot machine that costs me 5%, and you have to make the argument. And as a sport, I, I, I'm I'm confident that horse racing is, is a good product that makes people carry on betting and it keeps them engaged. But we still need to make that argument. And actually, a lot of it is that the trading rooms at, at the big bookmakers used to be populated by people who loved horse racing. And now they're far less populated. I mean, it's it, the, the love of horse racing uh, has declined within trading rooms. And is that a generational thing, do you think? It's a generational yeah. thing, but it's also just the nature of the people who, you know, there's far more mathemat- mathematicians building algorithmic models. How do you feel about the kind of crypto blockchain excitement? Does, does that feel to you like there's an opportunity there and that people should be getting behind it or...? Uh, I mean, I'm 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 a fan of the blockchain as a technology and and a, 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 you know a way of you know not particularly just for gambling but for banking and mm. and anything that needs sort of open open tracking. Uh, I personally, I, I didn't get involved in Bitcoin. I very nearly, I, as somebody wanted to buy a, one of my gambling domains off me for uh, for Bitcoin. Uh, and I insisted on cash, which was a, an error since uh, I would have been taking Bitcoin at $600. $600 yeah. And um, I felt slightly foolish uh, when when I yeah, the domain <laughs> would have been worth about $20 million at peak. Um, I, I, the problem for me is that Bitcoin feels like it is being used for, largely for nefarious purposes. Yeah. And I... Uh, my my feeling always has been is that the larger Bitcoin grew, the more financial regulators would just say we can't live with this, and 
and obviously we had the period back in January where it hit nearly 20,000, at which point essentially all the regulators started saying, right, we're going to crack down on this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think if I were to buy a cryptocurrency, I'm buying Ethereum, although it's not performing terribly well at the moment. But I, I think that that I, I can I can see the point of it, but I it also just feels like a massive bubble to me. Yeah. Um, Do you see its application in iGaming is making sense? I mean, there's been a lot of ICOs. There's been um, various people not even going down the ICO route, but perhaps doing token sales to try and kind of. Yeah, I mean, I think I think largely. Uh, I, I would say that 98% of them would fail, would be my guess. Mm. And I think that there has also been uh, a lot of uh, what I would describe as close to fraudulent activity, a lot of people being suckered in by, um, uh, how shall I put this in a polite way? Um, some of the people on the edge of our industry who yeah. who get involved in every new trend are certainly now involved in uh, in, <laughs> in in the ICOs and the yeah tokenization and and I think you know fun, fundamentally there is something there but uh you know I think if I if I had to invest in a bubble I'd probably rather invest it you know if 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 I'm going to get a sweat away and excitement I'd probably be buying Canadian cannabis stocks rather than <laughs> rather than Bitcoin or Ethereum. You heard it here first. <laughs> well, they're definitely they're definitely in a bubble Jokes as well, but, but but. <laughs>